Father, we come to you in prayer now, each of us on a journey, our church indeed on a journey, and uh, in the particulars of where that'll take us in, in this life and on this earth, we aren't always so sure. We aren't always so sure what we're looking at in front of us. We aren't always so sure where we are. But Father, we have been raised with Christ and we seek the things that are above this morning, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and we set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For we've died and our life is hidden with Christ. And this we know about our journey, that when Christ appears, our life appears and we will appear with him in glory. Prepare us for that day, even as we now journey, continue our journey through the book of Genesis. Open our eyes to see what is here and to receive what is here, to see you more clearly through what we read on this page and through what we hear in this word proclaimed. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. Open with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis will be in chapter 43 this morning, and that's page 36 in the Bible provided for you, just within arm's reach if you didn't bring one with you today or if you don't have one. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, borrow that one this morning, but then come visit with me after the service or anyone at our uh, welcome desks at our main entrances. We'd be glad to give you a copy of God's Word this morning. I'm grateful for Dan's preaching over the last uh, two weeks. It, it fed my soul to sit under the word as I know that it, it did yours. I think that you'll see, you'll see before the morning's over some meaningful and real connections between the book of Hebrews and the book of Genesis. And no surprise, we have one God who stands behind all of Scripture as its capital A, author. Some comments to set things up before we read. Have you ever had somebody in your life that has sinned in a cruel way against you and um, you didn't want reconciliation, weren't interested? Um, your, your heart, if you're honest, over time set, set itself against them in such a way that if they were to turn, that actually wouldn't be good news because uh, that would mean you have to maybe turn toward them uh, with open arms. I remember one couple uh, many years ago. Uh, it's a beautiful story. It has ended in a beautiful way. Um, the gentleman, his wife was not a believer, and he would, would bring us into that from time to time, and it was clear that things were difficult at home. Well, then she confessed Christ, and we baptized her, and it, we were all thrilled, except he wasn't that thrilled, which was a little weird. <laughs> Is there not a part of us that likes an individual who has sinned against us in cruel ways kind of likes it when they persist in their sin because it gives us permission to persist in our condemnation of that person quietly in our hearts. This cycle of sin that we're caught in is not untypical in a sin-cursed world. Sin breeds sin, breeds sin, and we're all in the mix. From the debate stage to the kitchen table, we do not admit it but we kind of like being aggrieved. We kind of like being sinned against because it gives us a kind of a veiled license to sin against someone else. We are not always so warm to reconciliation. Well, is there a way out of this cycle? Is there a way out of this cycle? Uh, Hold that question. We'll return to it before we're done. Let's pick up where we left off in the book of Genesis by reading together from Genesis chapter 43. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, "Uh, Go again, buy us a little food. And Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. 
both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father, Israel, said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry as a present down to the men, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, I am bereaved. If I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And we'll stop there. What was Joseph's intent? What was Joseph's intent? A band of brothers would have reason to wonder. Consider that the last time they were with Joseph, whom they don't know by that name at this point, he accused them of being spies. He threw them in prison. He stuck money in the mouth of their sack when he sent all but one of them back home, presumably to strike fear into them. He'd falsely accuse them of being spies. Perhaps they would wonder if they would be falsely accused now of being thieves. It was an obscure encounter. Houses of officials like Joseph would have their own private dungeon. Maybe that was in the back of their mind. Hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner tonight? Wouldn't that be great? Just come on over for dinner. My special guests, sure. This band of brothers would have reason to wonder concerning Joseph's intent. And we have our own reasons to wonder concerning Joseph's intent. Remember what these brothers did to Joseph. They envied him. They hated that he had what he had. And it's not just that they wanted Joseph's special coat or, or, or the father's favor. They didn't want him to have it. They attempted murder, throwing him in a pit. They decided instead to make some money off of him and sold him to traitors. We have reason to wonder Joseph's intent. Joseph's loud and abrasive posture toward the brothers in the last chapter would fall nicely in a line with our expectation that Joseph just might have it out for these brothers. It also fits the pattern of failed leaders across Genesis. Indeed, all of Scripture saved Jesus. Noah drunk in his tent, Abraham lying about Sarah, Jacob deceiving his brother and everyone else. Joseph has had some good moments. He was elevated in Potiphar's house because of his integrity. He kept his integrity when propositioned by Potiphar's wife, ended up in prison. He was elevated in prison and entrusted with responsibility there, and more recently elevated to a place of leadership by Pharaoh, who trusted him on account of his integrity. Now Joseph's in charge of all Egypt and Egypt's future. He's proven himself a man of his integrity, but it can't last, right? In calculated fashion from envy, these brothers sought to end his life. And it would not be an unreasonable conclusion to see that Joseph would have it out for his, his brothers. Joseph is not, after all, the long-expected Savior. We know who the long-expected Savior is. What exactly was Joseph's intent? Well, how should we make our way through the chapter today? We've read just a third of the chapter. Sometimes there's an object you can follow. Look out for it. Uh, It seems as if we've been placed here, something placed here to capture our eye. And this morning, we're going to track a package. You know how to track a package? Searching for that email, like, where is that thing? Give me the link. Um, Amazon's really good at that. You'll notice that 
There's a present that they're preparing for Joseph, and they've carried that present to Egypt. But we're going to track that present across the story this morning. The present is ordered, it's put on hold, and then it is ignored. A present ordered, verses 1 through 15. A present that represents a a severe situation. The reason this present is in hand is because this situation has put some people up against a wall in a very difficult position. There may not be much grain in the land, but there is an elephant in the room when our story begins. What is an elephant? An elephant is big. Everyone can see an elephant. An elephant is awkward, just are, especially when they're in a room. Elephants weren't made to be in rooms. And if one's in a room, no one's going to want to touch it or to deal with it. So elephants are big, they're awkward, especially in a room. And when they're in a room, you don't want to deal with it or, or, or touch it. It's the kind of situation that opens our story. Well, what is the elephant in our story? If you listen real carefully, you can hear it in verses 1 through 2. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Uh, Go again, buy us a little food. If you know how to hear that, something is a little off here. We're in a stretch of chapters uh, behind us and ahead of us that will basically toggle geographically between Canaan and Egypt over this matter of food, uh, a grain in the context of uh, a great famine. But you remember how the first journey started uh, with dad looking at the sons and saying, why are you guys standing around looking at one another? Go to Egypt and get some food. It was a good moment for, for Jacob who had been passive at times. Well, the famine was worse now. It's severe. Before this engagement is over, they're going to be talking about life and death. And the severity of the famine will force This man to do something that he does not want to do. So where is dad's leadership? Why this line, uh, go again and get us a little food. Could you guys go down to the corner store and pick up a little something to eat? That's how it it sounds. Could you go down to the white hen? Do they have white hens around here? Is Is the white hen pantry even around anymore? It's been a long time. They were in Chicago. Go down to the Spinks which is maybe a little better for going to Egypt. Could you guys go down to the corner store and pick us up a little something to eat is basically how this, how this sounds. Last time he sent them for food, he, he, looked at his, he looked at his sons as if to look all of them in the eye at once. That's the tone. And said, get going. In this case... It's as though his eyes are averted. It's as though he's reading the paper. Could you guys go and get us a little something to eat? What is going on here with this urgent situation and this passing comment? Well, let me draw your attention to the emotional dynamics in the conversation which follows. Verses 1 through 10 are a heated exchange. Dad's chill request lights it up. Judah replies with a condition. The man warned us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Dad, we're not going anywhere without Benjamin. Benjamin is coming with us if we're going to get food. He repeats it twice. So dad has either forgot about this and it's been a long time or he's hoping they've forgotten about it. One of the two. Dad replies with a complaint. Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And then there's a defense. Well, what were we supposed to do? He just started asking us questions. We didn't know that he would say, bring him down. And then an endearing pledge. Judah steps in. All the brothers had answered in their defense. Now Judah steps in. Send the boy with me. I'll rise up and go. He's, uh, I'm, I'm the pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I don't bring him back and send him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. It's curious he calls him the boy. Uh, Benjamin's probably about 37. So 
I mean, I don't care how young I would be if I had an older brother calling, I'm 38, me the boy. Uh, I wouldn't respond to that very well. In fact, this, this word, you could translate it lad, doesn't show up anywhere else on the lips of a brother about a brother in the Bible. Send the boy with me. But I think Judah's appealing to his father. Benjamin is, well, his father's baby. That's why he doesn't want to send him. Judah is endearing himself to the father in this, not by speaking of his brother as a youth, but by speaking to his father about his brother's relative youth. You can trust me with baby brother. But then he lands it with some sarcastic hyperbole. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So the air is thick in this conversation. We might not think, can you go get some food, is off except for the conversation it lights up, which surely he should have expected. Well, after all that, we move from a heated exchange to a change of mind. Dad goes from withholding Benjamin to sending Benjamin. But addition, in addition to Benjamin, he sends the brothers with three things. He sends them with a present. Here's our package. Verse 11, if it must be so, do this. Take some choice fruits of the land in your bags. Carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. There wasn't a whole lot of food around, so this must have been a necessity given the circumstances. An appropriate gift for a dignitary, possibly a kind of an appeasement gift on which their lives might hang. He sends them with a present. He sends them with money. Put double in your sacks that you came back with. You remember they went out with money. They came back from visiting with Joseph with the grain they bought, but also with the money in their sacks. So dad says, hopefully it was just an administrative oversight. Stick that money back in the sacks, but then take as much money because you're going to bring back some more grain. He sends it with one more thing. He sends them with a prayer. Verse 14, may God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man. May he send back your other brother in Benjamin. As for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. Let's look for a moment at the the content and the intent of of this prayer. This content, he addresses God, God Almighty, El Shaddai. We'll revisit that in a moment. He appeals for mercy. May he grant you mercy. That's where mercy comes from. That's where help in this circumstance is going to come from. When pushed to the wall, Jacob knows where to get it. And then he gets specific that, you may, that he may send back your, brother, your other brother and Benjamin uh, with you. It's a fine little outline for a prayer, addressing God as God, appealing to him for what only he can grant, And then doing that with the measure of specifics. We like to say at evening prayer that we want to pray specifically because we want God to answer specifically. And frankly, it's easier to know when he's done it, when he answers specifically, specific prayers. Pray specific prayers. A little bit on the content of the prayer. Now the intent. Is this prayer real or fake? Is it sincere? Or is it a formality? Consider when it comes. They've just done all this haggling He throws a prayer in at the very end. And Jacob's been difficult to read, if we're honest. Seems like this might be a little trite, not so true. He does seem to have lost his spiritual vision. He's waited an awfully long time to send his sons. And doesn't he still have a son in custody in Egypt? Why wait so long? Long enough that either he or the sons might have forgotten this condition. He refers to Simeon. He calls him your other brother in Benjamin. He doesn't even name him. And to top it off, he seems self-focused. And and even after praying, he seems resigned to the worst possible outcome. If I'm bereaved of my children, then I'm bereaved. May God Almighty grant, uh, grant you mercy and may your brothers come back with you. But if everyone dies, then everyone dies. 
I don't know. I guess that's a, that's a one version of if, if you will. Well, yet look at how he addresses God. I just want to meditate on that for a moment. God Almighty. We've heard that before. El Shaddai. We heard it before when the Lord spoke to Abraham in Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And following those words, massive, massive promises. And that indication of how old Abraham was wasn't just for Ancestry.com nerds. This was because it was incredible that he would be 99 years old without a child. And yet that is precisely what God would call him by faith to believe. We heard this name when Isaac blessed Jacob in Genesis 28. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. He's, he's gathering the expectation from the promises of God into a blessing on Jacob. And we heard it when God gave Jacob the name Israel, chapter 35. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own, your own body. And each, in each instance in which this name is picked up, and it will be picked up one more time before the book of Genesis is over, there is an expectation of an advancement of the purposes and the promises of God. There is a revelation of his purposes and his heart and his faithfulness to keep them. On Jacob's licks in this situation, though, it does kind of sound like what they call a, a foxhole prayer, doesn't it? Just because it means what it means doesn't have to mean that it always means that on the lips of every character who takes it on in this book. Foxhole prayer, prayer of one who prays when they're in a foxhole. A desperate situation, perhaps the kind of prayer they would not pray unless they were forced to pray it. Should we even bother praying in foxholes? Should we even bother praying if we haven't prayed? Should we even bother praying when, we're, when it's really the last thing that we, that we can do? You'll hear folks say sometimes, uh, speaking condescendingly about this kind of prayer, they only pray when things are bad. We should pray also when things are good. Well, I can affirm that. I think you can affirm that. But better to pray earnest and honestly from total dependence when we are made to pray by God, by circumstances he has given to us to force us into that position of dependence than to pray heartlessly all the time. God isn't listening to us in these moments and saying, well, let me open up your prayer portfolio and decide how to answer you based on how many hours of prayer you have. Disqualified. Nope. He hears them in foxholes. Yes, friends, pray this kind of prayer. What if you've been self-focused? And what if you've even been self-focused in and around the, the call you're, you're asking on God? Pray the prayer. It's always right to call on him for mercy. And is that not why God puts us in foxholes? If you find yourself in a foxhole this morning, if you find yourself in a foxhole tomorrow, friends, we'll all find ourselves in positions where we feel there is nowhere else to go but to call on God. And he is happy to take a call when you're in a foxhole. Jacob wasn't praying as he watched the grain supply go down but he is confronted now with life or death. And 10 of his sons are now in his face about this. And so he prays and he asks for mercy, which is exactly what all of them need. And so filled with confidence, imagine how the sons would hear this, filled with confidence from their father's prayer, their minds racing with the promises of God and God's determination from their own family story, which is our family story, God's determination 
to bless. That is to undo the curse. That is to fix the problem of sin. That is to reconcile us to himself. Filled with the confidence that God Almighty, El Shaddai, who can give Abraham a baby at so many many years, filled with this confidence, they set out. Verse 15, the men took this present, present in hand, and they took double the money with them, as commanded, and they took Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Well, here we are, before Joseph in Egypt. How will they be received? A present ordered, and now a present on hold. A present on hold. Verses 16 through 25. Verse 15 put us on Joseph's doorstep. Basically, we shouldn't necessarily think that it's before Joseph face-to-face. It is in Egypt. They may not have even expected to engage so directly with Joseph. Perhaps they would have expected to show back up and have some mediators uh, confirm that, yes, Benjamin was here. No, they're not spies. All right, sell them some food. That would be the best-case scenario they could hope for. Verse 15, put us on Joseph's doorstep, basically. But if you look down at the page, we're not going to actually be with Joseph in the room until verse 26. The present we're tracking is stuck at the local warehouse. That's always annoying, by the way. I can see that it is close. Even if it's not stuck in the local warehouse, for it to be that close and not on the doorstep is, uh, is too close. It's said that early on, at least, when uh, a key partner would come to meet with Steve Jobs, Steve would, would let them wait for an hour before he came down. Uh, nothing to do, but he wanted them to wait. And there's even an instance in which Bill Gates in the 80s, they had uh, Bill, uh, Microsoft was making software for, for Apple. Bill Gates came and was in the, in the waiting room on the first floor, and other employees at Apple knew that if they wanted... I don't think it was Apple. I think it was at Next at that time. I was getting the timeline wrong. Uh, other employees knew if they wanted to get some chat time with Bill Gates or whoever was meeting with Steve, they just needed to head downstairs at the time of the appointment because they'd have about 60, 60 minutes. And uh, what was he doing? I don't know. Trying to strike fear in them, create a little anticipation. He had his own designs. It's creating tension. Joseph must have been doing something like this A third of this narrative takes place in the waiting room. This present on hold represents a fearful, a fearful expectation on the part of these men. Let's watch what happens here. Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did if Joseph told him and brought the men into Joseph's house. So there they are now in Joseph's house. Joseph is not there. They're in the waiting room. Did they expect to catch Joseph's notice so early? They needed to contact him because they had Benjamin, but I don't expect they expected him to be watching them. Yikes. And this invitation to his home was doubly unsettling. One thing to know that Joseph was watching for you but that he's preparing to have you in his home. What do they make of this? Well, we're told in verse 18, they were afraid. Whatever they had in their mind and heart from their dad's prayer, delete, were afraid. It's all they felt. We're told it, but we're also shown. We can hear it in all of their many words. Had a, had a boss one time who, I, I, sometimes I ask it just to see what happens and I think it's kind of funny to say and you'd be in the car with him and he'd say, so what else is going on? And all of us had stories of one kind of another of something coming out. <laughs> and apparently he didn't mean anything by it. It was just, it's, maybe it was a management style. I just walk around and ask what else is going on? <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe it was just him killing the silence. But, um, you know, someone would open up about this or I'm thinking of leaving or, yeah, last week was really bad. (laughs) 
in any case, you get chatty when you're nervous. Well, these guys get really chatty. Verses 18 through 22. All they've, all they've received is an invitation to Joseph's place. And now they're inside and they can't shut up. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, uh, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time uh, that we were brought in so that it may re- he may re- assault us and fall upon us and make us servants to seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. So they start talking amongst themselves and they get out of there and knock on the steward's door and then they tell him the story and they're appealing, they're afraid, they're sure it's bad. They've been accused of being spies, of coming not for help but for harm. And through, and, and through this king, though this king spreads a table for them, they do not believe it. And so they appeal and they are terrified. This spread that's coming, this meal that's coming, could not, could not be good. What should they expect to hear from the steward? They must be crossing their fingers or whatever they did. Maybe they'd hear, you're right and you're in deep trouble, but you're not going anywhere. Maybe they'd hear from the steward. Well, that's interesting. Let's, let's wait and see what Joseph says. Maybe they would hear from the steward, oh, that's my mistake. Uh, thank you for the correction. Uh, no trouble. They were just sure that they would be accused and that they would be made servants, hard servants of Joseph. Instead of all this, though, instead of all this that they expected to hear and on good grounds, at least based on how they were being understood, they hear this. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in the sacks for you. I received your money. In other words, it wasn't a mistake. I received your money. I put it back. But even the steward is interpreting all of this theologically as though he's been taught. Interesting. How good that must have been on their ears. They were not taken to prison. They were given a beautiful assurance. A beautiful assurance of peace between them and if the steward is telling the truth, between them and Joseph. And they were given their brother back, verse 23. Then he brought Simeon out to them, well, as they would have expected. And they were given some time and some stuff to prepare to meet Joseph, verse 24. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and he gave them water and they had washed their feet, and when he had given them their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present. There it is again. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. So we had a present in the first section that represented a desperate situation. It's the only reason they put that thing together is because it's all they could do. Jacob didn't want to see the sons leave. They were leaving with Benjamin and they had this present. Well, this present represents a fearful expectation, at least that has been moderated at this point. The package, though, is tracking again. The package has been ordered. It has been on hold. Now it's ignored, verses 26 through 34. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them. And they bowed down to him to the ground. Well, what did he do with the present? Well, we don't know. And that's at least kind of the point. It disappears at this point. Joseph wasn't acting a dignitary who expected to be appeased or one gifted politely by guests who would then exchange pleasantries. He may have had the present in his hands. He may have had the steward take it. I don't know. 
but he had questions on his lips immediately. He inquired about their welfare. He said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? How unexpected was that? And he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And this was all too overwhelming for Joseph. So you've got fear on the part of these guys. Anxieties are high. Joseph's heart had to be beating just as fast. Verse 30, he hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. How strange that must have been for Joseph to greet them and then to run out of the room or dash away. It's not like they had cell phones that might buzz or a pager he has to go handle something. Uh, He had to just get out of the room. He was overwhelmed. Not even the crying before them would give him away. But it'd be super weird. Not what they were expecting. And it would undermine what he was trying to do here, I think. So he hurries out. His compassion grows warm. And he cries. Now a second time, all the brothers are bowing down to him. That must have been overwhelming. From Joseph's perspective, this would take him all the way back to his dreams. Remember his dreams. Remember the dream he had twice. That his brothers would bow down to him. These brothers have already, minus Benjamin. Here's Benjamin. They're all here. They're bowing down to him. Those are good days back at home. Under his father's care. And with his father's favor with his brothers even, although he was a bit naive and they were terrible to him. That dream was a high point, a communication that God might, in fact, God would work through him. And that would entail at some point his brothers bowing down. Never would he have dreamed it would happen like this. Let's just recall the landscape of Genesis for a moment. Put ourselves, we'll zoom out and we'll zoom back in. By way of reminder, if you break Genesis down into parts, you've got these refrains. These are the genealogies of, the genealogies of, the genealogies of. The book of Genesis is a family tree. It's following following a line. It's following genealogy. It's structured according to, to people, and in particular, a family, Abraham's family, eventually by chapter 12. And each of these high points where you have a pivot between one one line and another segment in the line. At each high point of the book, there's a promise of blessing on God's lips or on the lips of one passing it down to another. And after the curse is given in Genesis chapter 3, this reminder of blessing that God is out to bless, that blessing is being passed down, is a reminder that the curse will be turned back and everything set wrong in Genesis 3 will be set right in God's original purposes for humanity that he would bless us. He blessed them, we're told in chapter 1 or chapter 2 when he made Adam and Eve in his image. He had purposes for us. Those purposes stand and he stands behind them and he is determined to bless. Those are the major divisions of the book. Well, well you have chapters 1 through 11... And then you've got, uh, it's before Abraham, and then you have Abraham, and then you, have, you follow Abraham's line. And our time with Abraham answers the question, we could say, how will God save? How will God bring about his blessing? Well, by grace, through faith. We have little hints of substitution, but the accent in the story of Abraham is that God brings it about through faith. Jacob answers the question, Who will God save? And the answer to that is whomever he wills. Story after story driving home the point, apparently God isn't saving on account of the merits of the the people he saves. The New Testament will pick that up. What's Joseph's story about? It's not that each of these characters answers only one question, but there is a dominant point of emphasis on repeat and in the way the New Testament picks it up. What is Joseph's story about? 
about? What question is it answering? Well, Joseph's story answers the question, what kind of Savior will God provide? What kind of Savior will bring blessing to the whole earth through Abraham and his family? And the answer is a Savior like Joseph. Here is Joseph. His compassion is warm toward his brothers. And here's the nagging question. If he's big-hearted for his brothers here, then why didn't he reveal himself to them? Why doesn't he just reveal himself? Uh, For dramatic effect, uh, is it so that we've got a better, longer story, a story with maybe some more attention? What is the reason in his mind that he doesn't reveal himself? Instead, verse 31, he washes his face after weeping. He comes out and controlling himself, constraining himself, he says, serve the food. Why does he keep his identity back? Well, maybe it's because the Egyptians were disgusted with the Hebrew people. They were an abomination to them. Verse 32, they served him by himself as he would be served by himself given his role. Then they served them by themselves, that is the brothers. And the Egyptians who ate with him ate by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So maybe he's just keeping peace in the room. I mean, what were to happen if he were to reveal that he's one of them? Maybe that's it. What is Joseph's intent in all of this? Joseph does two things next, which I think hint for us at what he's doing. Why he's not revealing himself. Verse 33, and they sat down before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Amazement. They were amazed that they had been seated in the order of their birth. How would he know they were amazed as well at this, at this being a kind of a climax of his incredible, surprising welcome that is without explanation. There were others coming to Egypt. The whole world was coming to Egypt for grain. His compassion grew warm. We know why he's showing it. Otherwise translated, remember the prayer? Otherwise translated, Mercy. His mercy grew warm. The father prayed, May God Almighty have mercy on you. And here, Joseph's compassion grows warm for them. The man, the man has had mercy on them and they're amazed. His intentions are all mercy. That's the first indication. Whatever he's doing, it's merciful. Uh, second, second hint we get here is verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. All right, so Joseph's getting served and portions are getting taken from Joseph's table over to the Hebrews' table, over to his brothers. Uh, but there's an exception here. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Hmm... That's weird. Why all the attention on Benjamin? Anyways, why, why would Joseph say, go get Benjamin? I'm keeping Simeon until I see Benjamin. Why did he do that? Why is he feeding him five times as much? Imagine a plate full of food and then imagine, a, imagine all of your plates full of food around the table and then one with a double portion and then one with four extra plates surrounding his main plate. That would get some attention, an obnoxious amount of food. This ruler of Egypt has selected out of this group of brothers, this one brother, this youngest brother, this favorite of the father for special favor at his table. And he has given him something that he has not given to the others right in front of them, and why. Maybe it is to see how they will respond 
to this royal favoritism being given to the youngest brother among them. Because isn't that what they didn't handle so well 20 years earlier when Joseph was the favorite of his father, given a royal coat indicating special favor and promise? They envied him and they hated their youngest brother and they just as well killed him, sold him for some money when they had the chance. How do they respond to this act of favoritism on this favorite son now? Verse 34, they drank and they were merry with him. They drank and they were merry with him. Benjamin gets five times as much and they're all having a great time. Joseph's intent was to test his brothers. Joseph tested them because Joseph desired to be reconciled with them. He desired peace with them. And there would be no reconciliation without some transformation within them. A posture changed toward their brother. They are amazed that they are seated in birth order. They were amazed because this ruler prepared a feast for them when they expected to be made his hard servants in showing up that day. But it is more amazing than they realize, isn't it? For the last time they sat down with this man to eat, this man was not exalted, but he was in a pit below because they put him there for dead. And that meal next to that pit as they sat down to have a bite to eat was an indication of their hardness of heart toward him. But this meal, better than they know, is an indication of this brother's warmness of heart, his merciful heart toward them. And friends, this is for us a picture of God's merciful heart toward us, even this morning. You know, I, I struggle with this in reading these, these, uh, these, um, these chapters. I have to have something to say every Sunday. Um, read a chapter of Genesis and figure out what to say for 45 or 50 minutes. We have an amazing Bible and there's plenty to say. But there's always the temptation to, to think real early about what I can offer that would be helpful for their lives. It's interesting that the New Testament isn't going to pick up Joseph's story or frankly any Old Testament character and hold them up as an example to follow in terms of their moral behavior. Jesus is held up for us to follow. Doesn't mean there's not something to learn here. But it means that I don't think the point here is a lesson in reconciliation with one another. There's a lesson in reconciliation in one another here for us, but not in the first place. In the first place, we are to see on the page here, we are to see in Joseph crying in his chambers, weeping from a warm heart, overwhelmed at the prospect of reconciliation with his brothers. Joseph, the one cruelly offended and sinned against, who is ever disposed to reconciliation with his brothers. And we should have that, you and I. But there's no hope for you and I to have that. We know ourselves. No, no the takeaway here is that this is how God is disposed to us. If you can get that, if you can receive that, then there's hope for you to have this toward your brothers and sisters as well. Don't start there with Genesis. Don't start there with Joseph. Don't start with you and your friends. Start with God towards you. They were amazed and they had no idea. And none of them have any idea still, right? This is a picture of God's heart toward us. God, the one who is eager for reconciliation. God who answers our prayers for mercy, even from foxholes, perhaps especially from foxholes. The God who puts us in foxholes so that we'll pray those kinds of prayers. The God who sees one of his sons coming, and runs to him 
and then yells for the animal to be killed and a feast to be prepared and throws a party. There's a parable about that on Jesus' lips in the New Testament. The God whose mercy we see in this man who in some ways, in some beautiful ways, prefigures the kind of Savior that will come. The God who has come, who saves in such a way as to make sure that all of the glory will go to him and who invites us, yes, to eat with him. Is it any wonder then that we would be commanded in our New Testament scriptures? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we have and so we do. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our motives are mixed this morning as we pray. Uh, We don't even want what we pray for very much, not as much as we know we should. And so maybe we're tempted not to pray. Father, we thank you that Jacob prayed and we thank you that, that we can pray and that you command us to and that there isn't a condition that all of our designs and desires and thoughts be perfectly pure. You call on us and command us to cry out to you for help, to cry out to you for mercy. So Father, we cry out to you for mercy this morning in the first place through Jesus and his saving work and we look at the cross where where heaven and earth met, where the God-man bore our sin in that place that means we can have mercy and we thank you for your mercy on sinners, for your great love with which you loved us. We thank you that it is true, even from this book of Genesis, that we can be saved by grace through faith. And Father, we thank you that this assurance of mercy is ours every day and that your mercies are new every morning, that you're the God who is disposed to us, the God who wants reconciliation and the God who indeed tests us, but the God who himself brings about the transformation that is necessary for reconciliation. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.